I want to begin by saying thank you. I want to say thank you for your response in helping our kids and our students get to camps this summer. Uh, We made that appeal to you last week with a meal that could be bought. Our students are going to even be cooking today. Um, And after 170 meals purchased and other donations made, you have exceeded our expectations. And I just want to say thank you for being willing to do that. Um, Hopefully by next week, we'll kind of be able to tell you how much we've cleared. They're still cooking today and all that kind of stuff. And hopefully by next week, we we can celebrate how much was raised. But honestly, no matter how much the amount, you guys give me great joy when I watch you love one another. And especially when you love our kids. So I just say thank you from the bottom of my heart for being willing to do that. I welcome you today. So glad that you're here. Whether you're at one of the campuses today, we encourage you to make yourself at home. Um, Thanks for being a part of this gathering. Um, Maybe you're watching us from home, so I don't have to say make yourself at home. You're already at home. But we want you to feel at home with Heart of Life and that this becomes a place where you and your family can connect. And we're grateful that you would take the time today that we could be together for a few minutes. I want you to imagine walking across a lawn when you suddenly see a sign that reads, keep off the grass. It gets your attention. You pause. Do you want to or not? Right? That becomes the question. I mean, it's a request, keep off the grass, but the grass looks fine to me. It's a request to keep off the grass, but the sidewalk to walk all the way around is kind of a long way. You know what I mean? And so you you consider the request. Now I want you to imagine walking across the lawn And this time you see a sign that reads, beware of dog. It gets your attention. You pause and immediately you begin to ask some questions. Do I see a dog? How big is the dog? How much do I want to risk actually getting bitten by this dog, right? You will consider This time, not a request. It's a threat. There is a difference. Today, we are going to look at a teaching that Jesus gives us. We have arrived in Luke chapter 17. Every week, we're looking at a different chapter of Luke. We're just making our way through Luke's story of telling us Jesus' story. In Luke chapter 17, right in the middle of this section that we're going to look at today... Jesus gives us something, it reads like this, verse 3, so watch yourselves. Now the translation is interesting because sometimes this same phrase in other places in the New Testament 
is translated with this word, beware. So sometimes it's watch yourselves. That's one way to say it. But, but what I'm saying is when you hear this phrase today that Jesus says, I want you to read it less like keep off the grass and more like beware of dog. Jesus is saying there's a threat that I'm trying to bring to your attention and this will bite you if you don't get it right. So, Here's the context of what we're learning today. Jesus, way back in chapter 9, we were told he set his eyes for the final time on Jerusalem. He's headed toward Jerusalem one more time. This is where he's going to go to the cross. This is when he's going to die. But between chapter 9 and where we are in chapter 17, Jesus doesn't just make a straight line to Jerusalem. He zigzags back and forth. And he does that so that he can hit every village that he possibly can, every territory that he possibly can. And the Bible tells us he is teaching huge crowds. There are times that they're stepping on each other. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's giving evidence that he is the Messiah who brings salvation. But when Jesus is talking to these huge crowds, most of the time we find him focusing in between two groups of people. One group, his disciples. He's trying to give them as much as he possibly can, knowing that he's headed for Jerusalem the final time. The other group are the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders in Israel. And these two groups are are, are juxtaposed against one another. When, When Jesus says something to the disciples to make a point, he's saying it, to the Pharisees to make a counterpoint. This is the way the teaching goes. It's as if all the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples, there's always this clear illustration of what happens if you do the opposite. What happens if you get this backwards? Everything that the Pharisees were, Jesus wanted his disciples not to be. And everything that the Pharisees were not, Jesus wanted his disciples to become. It's a contrast between true and false disciples. Jesus wanted his guys to be true. And the Pharisees were a picture of false. And so Jesus says in the middle of all this, beware, this is a threat. Let's get it. Verse 1, here's what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. He says, look, there there are going to be things that cause people to stumble. It is, we would use the term stumbling block That's often the word that's associated with this. It's it's the word in the Greek, scandalon, which sounds like scandal, which sounds like a trap. And that's exactly what this word means. This word in Jesus' day was associated with what what we would call a, a bait stick trap, all right? 
And you've seen this before because you've watched something on TV where some outdoor show and they're trying to act like they're surviving or something. And they've got some sort of a box, some sort of a trap and a stick. And in some way, they prop up the box with the stick and then they attach bait somehow to the stick so that when whatever it is they're trying to trap comes in, it takes the bait, it moves the stick, and what happens? Boom, the box falls on top of them. That's exactly what this word is. That's exactly the imagery that Jesus is doing here. But what he's talking about, when he says cause people to stumble, he's talking about false teaching. He's talking about when you start giving people a false understanding of who God is, when you start giving people a false understanding about what God says is right or wrong, he says, look, God's kids are going to face stumbling blocks in a broken world. This kind of trap is going to exist all around you. But don't you be the one who makes people stumble. Beware. That's the warning. So here's our first beware statement. I'm going to make a series of statements walking through this text. The first statement is always going to be the kind of the positive way to say it. And then I'm going to give you the negative way to say it too, because kind of Jesus does both as he walks through it. So here's the first. Live truthfully through God's word. I want to live with truth. Key is, I'm not the one who decides what truth is. You're not the one who decides what truth is. God is the one who decides what truth is. And so we go to his word, that's the measuring. Here's the negative. If I don't get this right, it means don't act or speak in any way that leads someone to fall away from Jesus. I don't want to lead anybody away from Jesus. I don't want to teach them that, that he's something that he's not. I don't want to say that, right, this is what you should do when he says something different. No, I want to live and act and speak in such a way that it points people to him, not makes them move away from him. Now, just in case you wonder if Jesus is really serious about this, verse 2, this should give us our answer. It would be better for them, who's them? That's somebody who caused them to stumble. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, little ones in this context does not mean children. This is not a little ones talking about babies or infants. The little ones here are believers. They are, they are people who have chosen to follow Jesus, but it has just happened in their lives. Jesus is moving back and forth across the territory. He's sharing who he is and what he's come to do. And they have just now put their faith in him. And so they are spiritually young believers. And I'm telling you, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, Jesus gives this same warning, this same beware. This is how much 
He watches over his little ones. This language is strong. When he says millstone, let me give you an image for that. This is the millstone. The huge stone that's at the bottom. It's got a smaller stone on top. Usually it was an animal that was attached to that. And as the animal walks, that stone rotates around the millstone and it it crushes whatever it is that they're grinding. If you put this stone, that's the millstone, much less, even the smaller one around anybody's neck, they're going straight to the bottom. When Jesus said that, I mean, it just creates this, nobody's got a chance. There's no swimming with a millstone tied around your neck. You're going straight to the bottom. It's interesting, we know from history, the Jews hated the idea of drowning someone as punishment. They did. Um, the, they would often uh, talk about that kind of punishment was only something that the Gentiles did. It was only something that the ungodly people did. I think that's why Jesus picked it. And he said, it would be better off, you would be better off to just drown immediately than to hinder the faith of a believer. That is pretty serious threat. That ain't keep off the grass. That's beware. This is consistent with what we read in other places in the scripture. Some of you know from the book of James, James tells us for those who want to be teachers, you ever read that? He says, if you want to teach God's word, you better pay attention to what you are doing. There is an accountability that goes with that because the last thing you want to do is cause someone to stumble. He's serious about this. Who are the real followers of Jesus? They are those who put other people first, which leads them to pursue the truth of God with a passion so that they live, so that they act in such a way that they don't put any obstacles between anybody and Jesus. They want to live a life that's godly. They want to set a pattern of righteousness. In fact, even though they have a freedom in Jesus to do some things, sometimes they will choose not to do those things if it causes a brother or sister to stumble. Are they free to do it? Yes. But they don't because they love someone else even more. That's the context where verse three comes into play. Beware, watch yourselves. Jesus says, I don't want you to miss this threat. Don't take it lightly. And then he connects it to the next thought. Check it out, verse three. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Some of y'all just kind of got interested, right? Rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. 
even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So in the first part, Jesus says, look, we hate sin. Followers of Jesus, we hate sin because we don't want to be a part of anything that leads somebody to stumble. But that has to be balanced. And what I mean by balanced is we hold that view in the middle of a world where we all sin. We're all sinners. And so we hate sin, but we got to have an attitude of grace toward people who sin. We don't want to give an offense that caused somebody to stumble, but at the same time, he says, when somebody does something against you, you don't want to take offense to that. We don't want to sin against somebody else, but we also don't want to hold a grudge against those who sin against us. And so thus, he gives us the second beware. Here's the second threat. Here's the positive statement, and then I'll give you the negative. Live graciously in God's forgiveness because people are going to hurt you. Here's the negative. Don't neglect to confront and forgive when somebody hurts you. When we read Luke, Luke gives us the principle. When we read Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives us the process. And some of you have heard it before where it talks about if someone is sinning, you go to them. You go to them and and you, you are truthful about, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Sometimes you doing that will lead them to repent. Forgiveness happens, it's done. But sometimes when you go to them and you confront them, they don't repent. What happens then? It says you take two or three with you. You take two or three with you. You go back to that person. You say, here's, what, here's, here's, here's the issue. Sometimes they repent. If they do, forgiveness happens. But if not, then it actually becomes a, a church issue. It describes where if the church confronts and no repentance happens, it is literally, he says, you treat them as outsiders. And it's this imagery where it's like the umbrella of God's grace. That is experienced when you're in the middle of his people. That's removed so that you feel what it's like not to have that kind of covering and grace and love. The whole purpose is that it will drive the person back to Jesus. That it will drive them to repentance. A few important points we got to get on this. Here's the first one. This is about love. This is about love. Why am I confronting the person who has sinned against me? The point is I'm not going to sit here and watch you walk down a road that is going to destroy you. This is not about vengeance. This is not about me proving where I'm right and you're wrong. No, this is about if you are sinning, it is, it is taking a step where it says, I'm not going to just sit here and watch you make decisions that are going to harm your heart and harm your life. Here's the second big point we got to make on this. You ready? Some of you need to hear this. 
Not every sin needs to be confronted by you. Nobody ever says this. But not every sin needs to be confronted by you. Now, God's going to confront it. He's going to confront them with those things. But come on, let's just, let's just be practical with this. Let's just look honestly at this. If in your marriage, I, I'll, be the, I'll be, if in my marriage, every time I miss the mark on my attitude or my response, if my wife confronts me every single time, how do you think that's going to go? Not very well. Not very well. You understand what I'm saying? Because there are some times that for all of us, when we sin, come on, when we sin, it is a part of this broken, we are still fighting the flesh. And it is not that I have predetermined this direction of my life that is destructive. Sometimes it's just this lazy, selfish reaction. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes that's what it is. I'm saying the same thing is true between parents and children. Now, don't take this too far. But, but I'm telling you, you, you cannot confront every single failure that they have. Or you will crush them and they will run. Same thing is true of friendships. Same thing is true of churches. Anybody want to go to that church where we're all just walking around waiting to point out every single thing that each other fails at? That's not the point of this. This is about when there is destructive, long-term pattern, what I'm going to call directional sin. You're watching somebody make a decision and they're, and they're repeating this decision and you know it is sending them in a place that is destructive you gotta, you gotta say something. You gotta re- rebuke. Here's a, a verse from First Peter chapter four. Peter reminds us above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, here's a part of what I think that means. It means, for example, in my marriage, there are just some things that between Jen and I, when some days we don't get something right and. I respond in some way that was stupid and something was selfish and whatever. There are some times she doesn't even bring it up. She just forgives me. It's not a directional, like, intentional pattern that I've, you know what I'm saying? It's just something selfish and she just forgives me and doesn't even bring it up. And one or two times I've done the same for her. You get the picture? You see what I'm saying? There are certain times in deep relationships, marriages, friendships, even churches where there are sometimes you see, I'm not saying it's not sin. It's sin. Whether it's just little selfish reaction sin or whether it is predetermined direction, you are going down kind of sin. Both are sin. It's just not both of them need to be rebuked by you every single time. God will. God will. 
but you don't have to do it. There have been moments where people will approach me just throughout ministry. There have been times people come and they go, Jeff, I just need to ask for your forgiveness. I'm like, well, I don't know what for. And they go, well, it's because it's I, I did something, said something, whatever, and I just need to ask you for forgiveness, and I feel like I need to tell you. And I'm like, you don't need to tell me, like, because I don't know it. I don't know what it is. You, it sounds like you're repenting. You've obviously been talking to God about this. You don't need to tell me. And sometimes, I've been a few times, they're like, no, I, I really think God's telling me I need to tell you. Okay. And they tell me, and I'm like, Really? Well, maybe I don't know if I should forgive you, right? That's how you feel. It's like you would have been better. Just don't don't say it because it, 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 that's part of what we're looking at here. It's like love covers a multitude of sins. You, 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 can, you can, there's repentance and you just move on. But what this is saying is that sometimes love must uncover those sins, those destructive long-term patterns, and you're not going to forgive until there's repentance. It doesn't mean that you won't let go of it. It doesn't mean that you won't forgive from your heart, but until that person repents, there's not going to be some rebuilding of trust. There's not going to be some reestablishing, right, of, of, uh, it's just, it's not going to happen. But when there's true repentance, the point is there is unlimited forgiveness. That's his point of seven times. He's saying that, that would, that would, they're like, that's like too many. He's saying no matter how many times if somebody sins and then they repent, you forgive them. Who are the real followers of Jesus? Not only do they not lead people into sin, but they are willing to do what is necessary to lead people out of sin. Now listen to the disciples' response. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And honestly, throughout the years, there have been times that I have read this text and I get to that point and I'm like, okay, they just moved on to something else. Like, like Jesus was making a point and now we're moving on to something else. I don't think we're moving on to something else. I think we're still on the same point. Because I think... What they're saying here is, Jesus, we don't think we can do that. What did he just tell them? Live your lives in such a way that you don't make anybody stumble. What did he just tell them? Be willing to forgive. Even if somebody sins against you seven times in a day and then they repent you for, and they're going, I don't know if I can do that. Jesus, you're going to have to give me more than I currently have. Increase our faith. It's like they recognize they're not strong enough. They recognize their inadequacies. So here's what Jesus says, verse 6. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. You can say to this mulberry tree, and that cool, that's pretty specific, right? You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. 
Okay, it's confession time. Anybody ever tried that? (laughs) Most people I know that follow Jesus and they start reading the Bible and you get to these kind of texts and you read it and you're like, okay, that just needs to be tried. I mean, I don't know if it'll work or not, but it just needs to be tried, right? And you go outside and there's always that tree that you actually wanted removed. You just haven't gotten it done yet. And you're just praying, hey, God, will you just like put that in my neighbor's yard or something like that, right? Just move it, just move it. No, it's amazing how we can read something in scripture and so quickly make it about us that we actually miss the point and we trivialize the idea that Jesus is actually making. One time when Jesus made this statement, apparently he was near a mountain. And so he, he used the example of moving a mountain. This time he's by a mulberry tree. And so he uses the example of using or, or moving a mulberry tree. What he's saying here, he's affirming what the disciples just said to him. He's agreeing, you can't pull this off by yourself. You cannot forgive people like I'm telling you, you got to forgive people. You cannot live a life of following me that, that never causes somebody to stumble. You can't do that without me. But if you will trust in me, then even just a small amount of faith in me, you will live a powerful life. Beware. Here's the third statement. Live, live dependently on God's power. Here's the negative. Don't underestimate the power of even a small growing faith. Mustard seeds were not the smallest seeds uh, in, in Israel, but they were the smallest common seeds that were used. That tiny, tiny, tiny little seed would produce a a tree, I guess we would say, some at times 15 feet high, 15 feet wide. The point is how something small could could accomplish something so big. The, The rabbis would say that the roots of those trees, sometimes they were 600 years old. So the picture is to uproot that kind of tree, that would be amazing just to get it uprooted from the ground, then to have it move through the air and replant in the sea, that that would just be something extraordinary. All in all, we would go, that is absolutely supernatural. And Jesus goes, that's the point. That's the point. The point is not for you to go outside and try to move the tree in your yard. The point is not him giving you some recipe to do a, right, some, some sort of a, a performance that makes people. No, the point is him saying, if you will trust me, then even a small growing faith in me, you can accomplish the unimaginable. Who are the followers of Jesus? They are the people who know that they are inadequate in and of themselves. And they live dependently on God's power, knowing that even small growing faith in him leads to a powerful life. Now, I find it interesting that although Jesus has given us some images, he hadn't told us any stories today. He's always telling stories. Well, not until now. Verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. 
Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Okay, that's a weird story. What's Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. When you start to recognize that you can't do it, and instead you turn to God, And you say to him, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't walk this out right on my own. God, I need you. I need your power. I I need you to work in my life. There's a danger. The danger is that when he begins to work through your life, and all of a sudden your life starts to change and you're being a better example of what it means to, to, to really walk out the truths of God. You're changing some things in your life. You're starting to, to, to really forgive people. You're, you're demonstrating grace and, and mercy. Here's what happens. You start to think, I'm not doing too bad at this. I'm doing better. I, you know what? I actually feel like I'm making a difference. In fact, that dude over there, he, he actually became a follower of Jesus after I, I, I shared with him my story and he became a follower of Jesus. I, I've, been, I've been trying to teach more of what God says and you know what? People actually like what I'm saying. God, you must be impressed with me. Here's the point. It's easy to become arrogant about spiritual progress. We are quite a bunch. We can't do it, so we ask him to help us to do it, and then when he actually helps us to do it, we go, look what I did. And we can quickly become arrogant about spiritual progress. So here is the fourth and the final beware. This is the threat. He's like, this will bite you. You gotta get this right. Here's what he says, live humbly under God's authority. Don't become arrogant about your spiritual progress. Now, we got to get a little bit of culture stuff here. The word that Jesus uses here for servant, it's, a, it's, it's, it's doulas, it's a, it's a bond slave in that day. It was attached to this relationship where there was a servant, there was an owner, but that servant lived in the house, that servant was cared for, that servant was provided for, in many cases, almost like family. And in Jesus' day, this was actually one element of how what we would think employment happened, okay? It was better than being the guy who had to show up at the marketplace every day, stand on the corner, hold your sign looking for work, and hopefully somebody would show up and they would hire you for a day. You would work for the day, they would pay you a day's wages, and then the next day, guess what you had to do? You went back to the marketplace, you stood on the corner again, you held up your sign, and you tried to get somebody to hire you. But 
in our modern employment setting, this parable, this story, we read it and it seems kind of distant and we might even declare a little bit unfair. I mean, come on, this, 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 this worker has had a long, hard day in the field. Isn't it right for them to get a little appreciation? Isn't it right for them to, to have a few rewards? But Jesus is building on a well-known, widely accepted relationship in his day. This master-servant relationship where there is an acceptance of authority. That's an issue for our world today. There is an acceptance of authority. There is an obedience to that authority. And then there's just a matter of honor in how it happens. The servant offers loyalty and obedience and a great deal of hard work. But in Jesus' day, a a authentic Middle Eastern nobleman, the one who was over that servant, what what would result is there was meaning and there was worth and there was security and there were relationships that were real. They actually were a part of the family. Some of you wish you had a little bit of that where you work. Some of you wish you had a little bit of that in your family. There was nobody in the crowd that day Nobody in a Middle Eastern audience who could ever imagine any servant expecting special honor simply for doing their job. We're not dealing with harsh hours. This is not about an uncaring master. This is just the, Jesus' point is, this is just the normal, relatively short days chores. And everybody in that crowd knew that master's not going to go overboard thanking them for that. It's just what they were supposed to do. Here's where Jesus, I think, is going with all this. He's saying, come on, Jeff. And maybe he's talking to you. Don't be too quick to pat yourself on the back and think that God's really impressed and that he owes you some kind of special favor. Be careful, right? The more you serve him, the more you follow him. Be careful that you're not too quick to fall into this trap where you pat yourself on the back and you think that God is really impressed and that he owes you some kind of special favor that somehow God is in your debt. Now, y'all, this is a different talk But we could do talk after talk after talk, the reward beyond this life, right? What's behind the curtain? It is amazing. What's behind the curtain? The rewards that come from faithfulness, it is absolutely astonishing. But the point that we're dealing with today is that when you and I have done all that we're supposed to do for God, that does not somehow make us more worthy of some special merit. It's not as though suddenly God is indebted to us. No, this is all about grace. Because no matter what we've done and no matter how well we've done it, we'll say it again, no matter what we've done and no matter how well we've done it, 
we have never been able to do it at a level that God is truly worthy of. Does he accept our praise? Yes. Does he accept our service? Yes. But is it worthy of him? Come on. He's God. We are unworthy servants. And that's the picture that Jesus draws from this little story. Who are the real followers of Jesus? They're the humble. They are the humble. They reject honor. They're not clamoring for honor. They don't believe that they have great honor in terms of what's owed to them. They're not in God's debt. No, the real followers of Jesus know this whole thing is about grace. How am I right with God? Justified by grace. How is my heart becoming more like him? Sanctified by grace. What does my future look like? A reward in heaven, glorified. It's all grace. We know it's always been about grace. It will always be about grace. It's humility. And I'm submitting to you, that is actually the topic of all 10 of these verses. It's humility. I'm I'm living in a way because I'm putting other people first, not me. I'm willing to forgive Right? Because there's a humility that's there. Every single aspect of these 10 verses has been about humility, even though the word doesn't show up in the text. But I'm telling you, we've got to get this right. So let me show you real quick, and we're going to wrap this up, but I, I, you, you have to see how serious God is on this. Let's start in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3. Here's what it says, and they would have known this. Proverbs chapter 3, he, that's God, Mocks proud mockers, but he shows, check out this line, favor to the humble and oppressed. God shows favor to who? The humble. Now I want you to watch what happens. We turn the pages to the New Testament. Check out what James tells us. But he, that's God, gives us more grace. That's our word. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Peter is going to get in on this. First Peter, here's what he tells us. Chapter 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. It's consistent toward one another because, check it out, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Anybody think God wants us to get this? Like he puts it in the Old Testament and then it keeps showing up in the New Testament, word for word, he keeps repeating it. Anybody think we're supposed to get this? Like this is a big deal. Even in the Gospel of Luke, we've already read in chapter 14, Jesus said these words, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we ain't done because when we get to chapter 18, Jesus will say again, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Anybody with me that may be This is something that is incredibly important. If we want to know what real followers of Jesus look like, humility, humility is the word over and over and over. I got a question for you today. 
question for campuses, question for those of you who are, who are uh, joining in with us today. What, what do you think is the toughest area in which to stay humble? Like for you, what is that? I mean, we've talked about four areas today, right? To, to live for somebody else's benefit, um, to forgive those who hurt you, uh, to admit weaknesses, right? To reject honor. Which, which area for you is the toughest to stay humble? I am afraid that when we hear Jesus say, beware, our image is skewed on that. I'm afraid it is. I'm afraid that when we hear Jesus say, beware of dog, perhaps that we think it looks a little more like this. Can you see him? He's right down here. Does he look ferocious or what? I love that. Beware of dog and we got the cute little puppy at the bottom. I'm saying to you, I'm afraid that when we hear Jesus say these words, this is a little more the image that we have. Okay, there, there could be a threat. Okay, you're going to have to take this off or they're not going to hear anything else I say. All right, because they're looking at cute puppies. At my house, at my house on a regular basis, um, there is an event that happens almost daily, almost daily where our English bulldog Pearl comes up to either myself or my wife, Jen, and Pearl begins to weep. She weeps. She doesn't do this on anything else, like nothing else. She will come up to us and she starts to make this noise like she's crying. She's, she's, she's whining. It's what she's doing. So you got this English bulldog. She's built like this and she's, she's, she's whining. She's weeping and her body just starts to, to shake a little bit. She kind of starts to bounce. And when she doesn't do this any other time when she does it, I know what she wants. She wants me to walk into the room and get a leash and she wants me to hook that leash to her collar and she wants me to take her for a walk. And most days, I kind of enjoy it, especially now, right? The weather's getting better. That's what she wants. I want to leave you with this image because I'm telling you, I'm afraid that some of us Some of us have a tendency to treat pride this way. I'm afraid that some of us are walking around with the very thing that Jesus said beware of. It will bite you, it will destroy you, And it's like we're walking around with it on the end of a leash because we think we can tame it. Now, here's why I'm saying that. Most of you every day see way more selfishness than you see unselfishness. Don't you? Most days you see people, who are they out for? Themselves. They make decisions that benefit who? themselves. Most people, it's an attitude. If I don't take care of me, who's going to take care of me? If I don't look out for me, who's going to look out for me? 
And when you get enough of that diet, you get enough of that language, you watch enough of that activity, there's just a part of us sometimes that we start to go, you know what? That kind of is how, that's how this whole world works. And like, if you don't look out for you, who, and the next thing you know, even though we know, even though we know Jesus said, this is a threat, this will hurt you. The next thing you know, we have clipped on to pride ourselves. And we know we kind of need to keep it at a distance, but we we just start to buy in a little bit toward, yeah, you, you got to look out for you. And there's just some part of that where it's got to be you first. And before you know it, we have Attach the leash to the very thing that Jesus said, you better watch this. Or maybe it's about forgiveness. And yet we hear Jesus say forgive. Is forgiveness the word of our culture now? No, man, the word of our culture right now is more like vengeance The word of our culture now is that if somebody hurts you, they deserve to hurt more than you have hurt. And come on, I'm not saying that I'm not about justice because that's not what this language is about. I'm just saying when you hear people, everybody's reaction to being hurt is always to inflict more hurt and vengeance becomes the word. All of a sudden you go, well, that's kind of just how it is. And before you know it, if you're not careful, you have attached a leash to a pride that says it's more about me taking care of me and protecting me than it is forgiving hurts. And you have, le- you have put the leash on the thing that Jesus said, this will destroy you. Or maybe it's a culture where, come on, it's about, it's about self-worth, it's about self-value, you don't go around admitting weaknesses. Nobody admits their weaknesses. You can't admit weaknesses. That sounds like failure. You got to, you gotta, come on, you're strong enough to do this. You're, you're, you're powerful enough to do this. Whatever you put your mind to, whatever you put your heart to, that you, you are able and you get enough of that language and enough of that language. And even though you hear God go, no, this is about you recognizing inadequacies and you recognizing that you depend upon him, but you start to buy in and you, you, you attach the leash to the very thing that God says, this is a threat. Or maybe it's just the whole clamoring for honor. Everybody is looking for honor. Everybody's trying to get to the top of the list. Everybody's looking for the accolades and the awards, and it's about promoting yourself. And even though you hear Jesus say the opposite, you just start to go, you know what? That is kind of how it is, and the next thing you know. I'm going to remind you that when God lists what he hates, You know what's at the top? Pride. Pride. You know what got Satan kicked out of heaven? Pride. You know what got Adam and Eve kicked out of Eden? Pride. And it is the venom at the heart of every sin that you and I ever commit. It is a rebellion of our heart against God that says, I know better than you. It's pride. And when I've got pride leashed, thinking that somehow, I I know I shouldn't be so prideful, but you know what, it's just a part. No, it will bite you 
every time. But the good news is that if pride leads the list of vices, humility leads the list of virtues. It's what the real followers of Jesus look like. They're humble. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you today for um, a pointed, a very pointed section of your word that you had written down that God, today we could look at it together and we could get a glimpse of what you tell us. God, this is a threat to our soul. And I'm asking you to help us today. Even though, God, we live in this world where selfishness is, is certainly preached more than unselfishness and where, where vengeance seems to be taught more than forgiveness. God, all that we see, God, I'm asking you to help us today to believe you. God, will you help us live truthfully through your word? that we will not lead anybody to stumble in their understanding of who you are, how they get to you, and how you love them. God, don't let us live like hypocrites. God, don't, don't let us live as obstacles. God, we, we want to demonstrate your kindness, your love, your grace. God, will you... Will you help us live graciously in your forgiveness? Will you help us live dependently in your power? Will you help us live humbly under your authority? God, this will be a fight that we fight until you wrap this thing up and we get to be with you in heaven. But I am grateful that we are not alone in the fight. Your grace, your power, your mercy, it is sufficient. And so today, God, will you help us to lean into you and depend? God, help us to do this right. Help us to love you right. God, forgive us. Forgive us for when we've missed it. God, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's selfishness, whether us thinking that somehow you owe us because of all that we have done. God, will you forgive us and will you help us to walk this right? Give us a heart that looks like yours. God, we look forward to that day when we stand before you face to face and we hear you say, well done. God, that means humility. Will you help us to do this right? And it's in the great name of Jesus that I ask it.